1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After a decade of crushing civil war and the punishing effects of international sanctions, Syria's regime is pressed for cash. It would seem it's found one way of keeping the lights on, trafficking in a party drug that's only growing more popular. And how do you like the sound of a kelp martini? Offshore farms of the seaweed are bobbing up off the coasts of New England. It's good both for humans and marine environments, and kelp is finding its way into cocktails, burgers, even toothpaste. But first, Flooding in Europe that started last week is continuing to wreak havoc. Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands have been worst hit, with a total death toll approaching 200. Hundreds more are missing.
2: It is erschreckend. I will fast sagen, the deutsche Sprache kaum Worte für die Verwüstung, die angerichtet ist.
1: Yesterday, during a visit to one affected town, Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel described the floods as terrifying. She said, The German language knows hardly any words for this devastation. The disaster has brought the notion of climate change to the fore. Regardless of the proximate cause of this flooding, extreme weather events will become more common. And sorrow is increasingly turning into anger as people question how well governments had prepared for this tragedy and how their political parties are preparing for those yet to come.
0: The floods in Germany over the last few days have been visually striking and have had tragic consequences for the population.
1: Matt Steinglass is a Europe correspondent for The Economist and is based in the Netherlands. Entire
0: towns have gone under water. there have been scenes of a meter and a half of water coursing through the narrow streets of medieval towns, Old timber and wattle houses being washed away in Belgium and the Netherlands. The dike and canal systems are world-famous, and they have national plans that are intended to cope with these kinds of disasters, but in a few places, they were still overwhelmed. Uh, They had a couple of serious-seeming dike breaks in the Dutch province of Limburg, but ultimately, the armed forces were sent in, responded very quickly, and uh, contained those
1: before they could cause too much damage. And it seems the floodwaters are are still building. Yesterday, it was flash floods in Bavaria. I mean, this, this devastation is still playing out.
0: The rainfall has moved off to the south, and the continuing consequences are that all that water that came down continues to gradually move through the river system. So in the Netherlands, the river level of the Rhine is still rising just as it gets engorged with the rainwater that comes coursing down from the highlands in Germany. It's expected to top... 14.5 meters above the normal water level in Amsterdam at the
1: Dutch-German border. And what's the immediate cause, though, of all this flooding? This flooding was caused
0: by a massive low-pressure area, which developed over the area between where Germany and Belgium and the Netherlands and Luxembourg all come together. It was hundreds of kilometers wide, and it sat there for days. And then it started sucking in moisture from all over north-central Europe. Soil was quite wet across much of Europe because it had been a very rainy late spring and early summer. And the heat was a big factor. It had been the hottest June since 1901 in the Netherlands. And that increases the capacity of the air to hold water. So once that moisture was sucked up, it had no place to go and just started raining back down. That meant that some areas got 90 millimeters of precipitation on July 13th. The next day, some place got an additional 70 millimeters or more. That maxed out the reservoirs and sewer systems. Uh, At that point, the water just started to overflow out of streams. The longer-term question is
1: how closely linked this disaster is to climate change. But pinning weather events definitively on, on climate change is always tricky. Can that link be substantiated here? It's definitely true that
0: floods like this are more likely because of climate change. But when you get down to attributing individual events to climate change, it gets more complicated. And especially with floods, it's harder than with other extreme events. With a flood, it's not just the rising heat that affects things. There is how much rainfall you're getting. There's how saturated the soil is, topography in the region. But a hotter climate makes severe rain more likely. One degree Celsius of heat... Uh, allows the atmosphere to absorb 7% more moisture. And in the Netherlands, the average temperature has risen by 1.3 degrees Celsius if you compare 1960 to 1990 to 1990 to 2020. So that means they've got 9% more moisture on average in the atmosphere, and they're going to get 9% more rainfall.
1: I mean, the big question from the start is is how well-prepared governments in the region were. Big, rich nations with plenty of resources, were they ready for flooding on this scale?
0: The Netherlands is quite well prepared for heavy flooding. Belgium is reasonably prepared as well. In Germany, it looks as though they may not have been fully prepared for flooding on this scale. More importantly, or more strikingly in Germany, there was adequate forecasting that these rains were going to be extremely heavy. But German public media failed to communicate that with sufficient urgency. There were no extreme, you know, code red weather warnings hitting in the German public media. So citizens took too few precautions. They didn't clear out, they didn't sandbag in the way that they started to in the Netherlands later on. And it's likely that this is going to have political consequences all across the region because the political struggle between parties that are cautious about mitigating climate change and environmentalist parties, such as the Greens, is very sharp all across Northern Europe.
1: Those political consequences will be most prominent in Germany. The flooding has interrupted campaigning ahead of a national election in September. For Angela Merkel, who will hand over after nearly 16 years as chancellor, this is a defining moment.
3: Angela Merkel faced the problem of having been away from Germany when this happened. She was in Washington on a visit.
1: Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist.
3: Of course, she hastened back and she visited the town of Schult, which was very badly hit. She went straight to the crisis areas to establish her presence and really herself as the person to whom Germany can still look when something so terrible befalls the country.
2: Wir stehen an ihrer Seite. Bund und Land werden gemeinsam handeln um die Welt wieder Schritt für Schritt... Interesting
3: choice of words, Jason, from Angela Merkel. We stand by your side, the federal government and the state, the local state, will act together to bring the world back to how it was. I think that has an implication that she understands the anger and criticism that is beginning to bubble up about the lack of preparedness, but also that sense that there is a lot of outrage about people feeling left alone to face this problem in the Rhine area. It's a very long way from Berlin. It's a very different kind of politics and culture, but there's also that division in Germany between the centre and the powerful local regional states, and that somehow the flood defences fell between the
1: two. And given that Germans will be heading to the polls in a couple of months, is this now immediately an an election issue, or or will climate change figure in more strongly?
3: Climate change will move centre stage at the election in September, there's no doubt in my mind. The question that follows from that is, what will the approach of the major parties B, so we've seen Armin Laschet, uh, Angela Merkel's would-be successor. He's the Christian Democratic Party's candidate for the chancellorship. He's talked about beefing up efforts to fight climate change, but he's also been attacked for unwillingness to commit more in practice. Remember, he's a big boss in the region where a lot of this has happened. But it must be said, he's had a, a real pratfall. In the last day or so, he was filmed laughing in the background in a social media clip when Germany's president, the figurehead in Germany, was giving a very somber message.
2: Obviously,
3: it was a mistake. He was unaware that he was in shot. But It just has shone a light on this question of who is actually ready to succeed Angela Merkel. And at the same time, of course, the Greens, who've surged in this election campaign, fallen back again with a lot of internal problems and a few sort of minor hitches of their own, sitting there at about 20% in the polls at the moment. Well, for them and for Annalena Baerbock, uh, one of the leaders of that party, it's really important to be able to make this moment work to their message that this is about more than just flood defences. This is about a much bigger change in Germany on climate change.
1: And thank you very much for joining us.
3: You're welcome, Jason.
2: It's that time of the year.
1: Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about In Syria this weekend, Bashar al-Assad was sworn in as president for a fourth time, after an election in May that was widely seen as a sham. It's ten years since Mr. Assad launched a war on his people rather than accept their demands for democratic reforms, a war that has now cost nearly half a million lives. But there are always others to blame. In his inauguration speech, Mr. Assad said Syria would continue working to overcome the difficulties caused by Western sanctions. We will not announce what methods we used before or what we will use in the future, he said. Among the methods the regime has been using to prop itself up has essentially been drug trafficking. The drug Captagon is so popular, it's now the country's main source of hard currency.
2: Captain is now the Gulf's favorite party drug.
1: Nicholas Pelham is The Economist's Middle East correspondent.
2: It's part of the amphetamine family. It's a stimulant that conquers sleep and can have a, a similar effect to Viagra. And it's used by young Saudis in really pretty large quantities. And how
1: did it get to be so big in Gulf states?
2: It took off after the start of Syria's civil war in 2011. It was initially used by commanders who wanted to give their troops a stimulant to counter fear and... Um, overcome sleep. And it was called chemical courage. And then there was an influx of fighters from other parts of the sort of drug producing world. And they found ample new turf in Syria, both to increase hashish cultivation and to expand captagon production. And they entered the war just at a time when Syria's formal economy was collapsing. It was suffering under the weight of war and international sanctions. And of course, the sort of predatory rule of the Assad's and just as the formal economy collapses, the sort of smuggling economy mushroomed.
1: And so all of this smuggling is, is tolerated by the Syrian
2: regime? It's not just tolerated. This is the way in which the wheels of the system are lubricated. Officially, the Assads say that they're not involved. And I did speak to kind of one loyal economist in Damascus who dismissed the entire story as propaganda. But... It's really not difficult to speak to smugglers themselves now in Syria. And, you know, there's just a general recognition that the formal economy has collapsed and the Assads are now dependent to keep the regime functioning on an informal economy and particularly on the captagon trade. And this is just a way in which warlords are paying their troops. And that's how kind of loyalists in the regime remain. Loyal, And, you know, it's got to the extent where even the president's own family are part and parcel of the trade. Some of his relatives are running operations out of the Mediterranean ports of Latakia and Tartus, which are kind of key for getting Captain Gun out of Syria. So, yeah, this is really what is keeping the assets afloat.
1: Well, it does sound like an enormous operation. I mean, how much money does it bring in for the regime?
2: <laughs> getting a handle on the precise figures is Really hard, but a Cyprus based consultancy, um, CRA, estimated earlier this year that foreign seizures alone last year had a street value of almost $3.5 billion. And that just contrasts with kind of Syria's largest legal export, olive oil, which is worth $120 million a year. So, you know, you can just see on t- in terms of scale how important the captive and trade and trafficking has become for the regime. Syria is now the world's largest pusher of Captagon, And it's got to the point where even pharmaceutical plants, which used to be quite important for Syria, even they have now been converted into pill factories just to keep the supply going. And as
1: you say, it it leads to a trade that has knock-on effects far outside Syria.
2: Yeah, we've just seen some huge seizures around the world in the last couple of years. There was one haul by Italian police last year. Um, They uncovered 84 million pills, which were kind of worth over a billion euros, and at the time, that was the world's biggest bust of amphetamine-related drugs. But then in May, the authorities in Malaysia seized an even larger uh, haul of 95 million pills.
1: And what about the trade inside the country? Does Syria itself have a Captagon problem?
2: So there was one survey in January that found that a third of Syrians in the north now knew a drug user. That's up from just 7% two years ago. I'm speaking to a social worker in suweda That's a city which is close to the border with Jordan. It was kind of traditionally a kind of fairly conservative place. It was a kind of Druze stronghold where you had tribal elders sort of really controlling habits and customs in the area. And that kind of old order is just broken down by the extent of the availability of drugs in the city as they pass through the country on their way to Jordan. There are kind of smugglers who just to show the extent of that tribal breakdown, there are now smugglers who are fighting turf wars for control of local markets and borders And perhaps most worrying, war profiteers and warlords are now becoming narco lords and perpetuating Syria's agony. So for those left in Syria, drugs are really threatening to destroy what little remains of a society after more than a decade of civil war. Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. Jason, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: A different type of farm is taking shape off the coasts of New England. Pink and green buoys bob gently over the water's surface, marking the lines where farmers have planted their underwater crops of kelp. Ignored by many in the West until now, this type of seaweed is proving to be a crop that can do more than just make a bit of money.
4: So seaweed farming in America goes as far back as the 1920s, but it is now experiencing a boom
1: Johnny Williams reports on American affairs for The Economist.
4: Lately, it's been emerging as a niche industry because seaweed is taken on as a supplement in dieting, but also in food and in restaurants. Restaurants are now offering seaweed salads and kelp burgers, and even some of them are having cocktails that have kelp in it or, or kelp oil. And also because it's emerging as a potential way of combating the effects of climate change.
1: Why is kelp potentially good for the environment?
4: Research has shown that it restores underwater habitats, which is very important because commercial fishing in many ways has ravaged the seabed in some places. But it also filters contaminants, and it sequesters carbon dioxide, which helps counteract ocean acidification. So it's emerging as an appealing way to help mitigate the effects of climate change. And it is attracting investments from environmentalist groups. Uh, so, for example, the Basis Earth Fund gave a $100 million grant to the World Wildlife Fund to study seaweed. And Sea Grant, a federally funded program that works with American research universities, launched a seaweed hub to serve as a clearinghouse for the industry.
1: So seaweed farming is, is now very much a thing.
4: It is. And, and, and what is interesting about it is that it's attracting newcomers to the commercial seafood industry. GreenWay, which is a Connecticut-based nonprofit that has a program for teaching ocean farming, um, has about 8,000 people in their wait list from over 100 different countries. And what I'm hearing from organizations that work with seaweed farmers is that a lot of the new farmers are women. They're switching careers and they're switching industries. I spoke with one. Her name is Susie Flores. She farms out of Stonington, Connecticut. And she worked in a higher education tech industry before changing over to seaweed farming. And I asked her why she does it. It's so much fun. It's really, I, I think the best way to say it is I, I find it to be very fulfilling. You're growing food that's healthy for the environment and, and healthy for people. And you're able to share it with your community.
1: So what does it take then to, to, to break into the industry?
4: So in some ways, seaweed farming is easier to enter than commercial fishing, which is one of the reasons why people are being attracted to it. But it's not always as easy as it may seem. Kelp farmers face several obstacles. One of them is simply bureaucratic. Getting the required permits can be a very involved process. Another one is about infrastructure. Raw kelp has a very short shelf life, which means that it has to be harvested quickly. So that it can be processed, and that's easy enough to do it at home, but when you're doing thousands of pounds of kelp it it requires uh, major processing facilities
1: still though it seems like the demand is there the the, uh, the the will is there. Do you think kelp farming is is here to stay?
4: I think so and I think that a lot of the seaweed farming industry seems to be driven very much by independent farmers like Susie Flores. They are not only growing it and harvesting it, but they are creating demand for it. They're the ones who are taking it to farmer's markets and introducing it to people. They're working with local restaurants to have menus that feature kelp. And they're working even with local schools and colleges to add it to school cafeterias. You don't need to watch a YouTube video about how to blanch or, you know. But, but with kelp, it's very much a steep learning curve for people. So first I have to educate them, and then I have to kind of get them to try it and enjoy the flavor profile so there's i think more steps Mm -hmm. but i think that that also means there's a lot of opportunity to educate people so i think the future of the seaweed industry is really driven by by women like them
1: thanks very much for joining us johnny
4: thank you for having me jason